This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. It's time for lunch. Welcome to Time for Lunch. This is a place to learn about eating, cooking, enjoying, and sometimes playing with your food. Each episode, we cover a new subject. I'm Hannah Forden. And I'm Harry Rosenblum. Tune in for food, fun, and flavor. We have a special guest here for lunch today, and it's up to you to guess who they are and what the theme of today's episode is. Are you ready? What shape are you? You might have seen me as a rectangle, but I come in all different shapes and sizes. Can I eat you? Yes, I'm quite delicious if I do say so myself. Ooh, and what color are you? I can be anything in a range from dark brown to light brown or even white. Okay, and are you an animal, vegetable, fruit, or mineral? Technically, I'm made from a fruit, but you probably know me better as a type of candy. Hmm, I think I have some idea. And uh, what other shapes do you come in? I come in chips, discs, wafers, and as mentioned before, rectangular bars. You said candy, right? Okay, I think I've got it. Are you chocolate? Yep, that's right. Harry, I have a feeling that, like me, you love Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It was one of my favorite books when I was growing up, and a pretty fabulous movie. You bet. It's such a classic, and my nickname growing up was actually Charlie. Listeners, if you haven't read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, tell your parents that you want to read it or have it read to you. It's one of the first books that I remember having my mom read to me, and then a year or two later, I read it myself. Definitely. And if maybe you're not quite up for reading it on your own, check out the movie starring Gene Wilder from 1971. It is a classic full of some really fun songs. Hannah, I have to ask, do you like white chocolate? You know, I really don't. (laughs) I have to say, it's always sort of tasted to me like soap. What about you? I don't like it either, but you know, I always find myself trying those cookies that usually come in an assortment that have white chocolate chunks, and then I take a bite and immediately I think to myself, why did I do that? I don't even like white chocolate. We have a special guest here today, our... Friend Emily Kunkel, who executive produced this episode, is here with us, and she's um something of an expert on chocolate for a reason. Hey, Emily, do you like white chocolate? Well, I don't really like white chocolate, but I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by all types of chocolate because I live in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Oh my gosh, you're like the queen of chocolate. Yeah, Hershey's pretty chocolate-centric. We have a chocolate museum on our main street. We have light posts made of Hershey Kisses. And of course, we have Hershey Park with Reese's roller coasters and, you know, all sorts of other chocolates. Emily, does that mean that when you're walking down the street and you're hungry, you can just take a bite out of the lamppost? Unfortunately, they're a little high up, but, you know, I'm sure someone's done it at some point. 
Because I'm imagining like a whole town made of chocolate where everything like the mailboxes and the parking meters and you could just like snap off a piece and just snack on it. That's definitely the the vibe when you're inside Hershey Park. The town is a little, you know, more more town like. So not quite as fun. But if you're there, you should definitely check out the park. And I'm sure you could take a bite out of a few mailboxes there. So aside from mailboxes, um, Emily, what's your favorite way to eat chocolate? Hot chocolate, cake, ice cream, pudding, straight from the bar? Hmm. Yeah, I love chocolate cake. I really love, there's, my favorite um, chocolate cake growing up was from this restaurant called Maggiano's in Philadelphia, and they have a few other chains, and they would have this chocolate dome cake that had 12 layers of rotating ganache and chocolate and then a, a, a glaze on the outside. And it, as a kid, it looked like the biggest cake I'd ever seen. And it was always a huge treat when we got to go. And we're going to hear about ganache later in the episode. What about you, Harry? I like to eat chocolate just kind of straight from the bar. And I like it bitter. So the more bitter, the better. Chocolate. A Milky Way. What happens before it rains chocolate? It sprinkles. Now it's time for our question of the day. The answer to this question is somewhere in the episode, so listen carefully. What country produces the most chocolate? Keep an ear open to see if you can find the answer. Early in the episode, we mentioned that chocolate is actually a fruit. You might be thinking, how is that possible? Well, technically, a fruit is anything produced by a tree containing seeds. Luckily, we have a special guest today from Dandelion Chocolate in San Francisco. Todd Masanis has been making chocolate for more than 10 years, and he's going to tell us exactly how that fruit is turned into the delicious chocolate bars we all know and love. I want to talk a little bit about the, the process of chocolate making. So it starts out with the beans, which are grown like any other agricultural product by a farmer. That's right. right? Yep. Yeah, they actually start in a pod. So if you see these pods, they almost look like little, little Nerf footballs. Yep. They grow right can off of the trunk them? of the tree. Yeah. And they can be all different shapes, sizes, and colors. There's lots of genetic diversity in cacao. When they're ripe, the farmer will cut them off the tree and cut them open. And when they open it up, inside they'll find um, a white fruit. And, and in the white fruit are these really big seeds, the cocoa beans. Um, so when we're making chocolate, we're actually making chocolate from the seeds. Um, the fruit is kind of like a really delicious, but almost like it's almost like a slimy layer outside the bean. And so the farmers, they'll, they'll, um, they'll take out the beans and the fruit. They'll put them in fermentation boxes. Uh, basically what happens is the yeast and the air starts to eat the fruit and create alcohol. Then the bacteria eats the alcohol, creates acid. That acid penetrates the bean, kills the bean, and starts to change the flavors in the bean. It actually mm. creates the flavor precursors. At this point, it won't really taste that good, but it's it's starting to get where it needs to get to. Because, I mean, the way it was supposed to work in nature is, um, let's say an animal might open the pod, eat the fruit, fruit is delicious, bean is super bitter, they'd spit out the bean and kind of spread it that way. Got it. It's kind of interesting that anyone figured out how to make something delicious yeah. from the seeds, which... Right. 
Yeah, and it wouldn't. It's like it's kind of like if you took an apple or some other fruit and you like threw out the fruit and then ground up the seeds. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the the farmers will ferment them. Um, it can be as unsophisticated as a hole in the ground with banana leaves over it, or you know the beans we buy. They have sophisticated setups with fermentation boxes and tiers, and um, in some cases thermocouples with you know the the curves. Um, but you know it's still pretty early days for fermentation for chocolate. Um, then they'll dry the beans. Um, that can also affect the flavor. Um, a more aggressive drying, you might end up with more fruity flavors or acid. You might have more gentle drying. Um, But then they're put into burlap sacks um, and sent to us. So we get the beans, and then there's a whole series of steps that need to happen. And these are all steps you could actually do at home um, with just, you know, with a few extra tools. Um, Anyone could make a great bar of chocolate at home, and we encourage that. But basically what happens is you take out the beans, and the first thing you have to do is sort them. So you don't want to have any junk in there. There could be some rocks, or usually with good beans, you don't get a lot of that. But um, we recommend any little, um, little broken bean or any, you know, moth damage or mold just when in doubt, just kind of throw it out. Just, you know, yeah. it's, it's not worth it. So we recommend if you're kind of doing this style, you know, sort through the beans, make sure they're perfect. Um, and then you have to roast them. And you could get a little coffee roaster or a big coffee roaster or an oven. Um, you roast them. You know, we tend to go for a more aggressive roast or sort of a um, more aggressive flavors. So lighter roast where you're really tasting what's in the bean. If you go longer, you'll probably get a more kind of roasty chocolatey chocolate. And then once you roasted it, you have to take off the shell. The uh, the shell is just this little papery part on the outside. You could just, if you're doing it at home, you could just like, you know, roll them in your fingers and peel them. Or, you know, you can build a machine or buy a machine to take off the shell. But once you take off the shell, you end up with the nibs. And the nibs are basically 100% chocolate. They're almost like a chocolate nut. Um, yeah. And then at that point, you have to grind them. And so um, we use a couple different techniques, but one is a melanger. You, you, at home, you could buy a mini melanger, a wet dryer for yeah. Indian cooking. And yep. you just you grind the chocolate for a couple days with sugar. And you just run it. Just run it. For a couple days. Just leave yeah. it alone. Let it just go. But so, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll put the chocolate in the melanger. After usually about three to five days, we'll have delicious chocolate. And if we're going to bake with it or make hot chocolate, it's totally fine as is. But chocolate is not naturally shelf-stable. So if I put it in a mold, oh, oh yeah, chocolate will start to bloom. Sure. Um, I've yeah. seen that happen. Yeah. yeah. And so that's just a textural thing. This is basically if you just take your chocolate, uh, let's say you leave it in a car and it gets super hot, and then you come back, it's all like white and gritty. What's happening there is the fat and non-fat parts will separate. Um, and so if you want to sell chocolate, you want it to look a certain way, then you have to temper it. You sort of have to heat, cool, and agitate it in a very particular way to cause enough seed crystals to form so that when you cool your chocolate, it crystallizes around that seed. Um, and this crystal structure, Form 5, is really nice in that it's um, super shiny, has a really nice snap when you when you break it. <laughs> um, it also has a great property that it will melt in your mouth, not in your hand. Anyway, so you've got your chocolate bars, and then you have to wrap them. We wrap it in gold foil and then in paper that we get handmade in India, and then we put our stickers on them, and so it's a whole bean-to-bar process. Man, that was a very intense process. I think it's time for a dance break. Welcome back. Let's jump in with some fun facts. 
70% of cacao is grown in West Africa, with the biggest producer being Cote d'Ivoire. Cacao trees can live to be 200 years old. Hot chocolate goes all the way back to the Aztecs. However, they didn't add sugar, so their version of the drink was a lot more bitter than what we're used to. The first manufactured chocolate bar was made by the British company Cadbury in 1842, and Cadbury is still one of the world's largest candy companies today. The heaviest chocolate bar ever made weighed about as much as a T-Rex, 9,700 pounds. That's too much chocolate, I think. But I would like to have a T-Rex made out of chocolate. Oh, for sure. I would eat the head first. In the United States, to be considered chocolate, a candy bar only needs to contain a mere 10% cacao. We are going to take a quick break and be back with a very, very special recipe from a very special lady. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Time for Lunch. Hey, Harry. I think it's time to eat some chocolate. Don't you? Definitely. Do you have a favorite chocolate snack? Mm-mm. Well, in keeping with our theme, one of my favorite chocolatey treats is chocolate ganache. And who better? to share a great chocolate ganache recipe than the author of the Cake Bible herself, Rose Levy Berenbaum. Hi, I'm Rose Levy Berenbaum, author of the Cake Bible and 11 other cookbooks. I live on a mountaintop in Hope, New Jersey. Ganache is a delicious combination of bittersweet chocolate and heavy cream. When I started writing the Cake Bible in the early 1980s, no one had ever heard of ganache. I thought to make a dark chocolate buttercream, you needed brown food coloring. Now ganache is commonplace, and I think it is the most perfect way of experiencing the full flavor of chocolate. A chocolate bar is hard, and it has to melt in your mouth before you can taste it. But ganache is immediately available to your taste buds. Ganache is great for frosting a cake, especially a chocolate cake, and even a yellow cake, such as a banana cake. It even pipes well. I especially love the sour cream version because it contributes a lilting quality and is so easy to make. 
This recipe is from the Cake Bible, and it makes two and two-third cups, which is enough to frost a nine-inch layer cake. It can be doubled or even tripled. Use 12 ounces, 340 grams, of bittersweet chocolate. Don't use a higher percentage, such as 70%, because it will be too stiff. And use 14 ounces, 400 grams, of full-fat sour cream. Low-fat does not have a good flavor, and it won't give the right texture. If you're measuring by volume, the sour cream will be one and two-third cups. Melt the chocolate in a double boiler over hot water, stirring often with a silicone spatula or in a microwave, but be sure to stir every 10 to 15 seconds. When melted, remove it from the heat and add the sour cream. Stir until uniform in color. If it is still warm, transfer it to another bowl. You can use it right away or you can soften it in the top of a double boiler or microwave. Leftover makes great chocolate truffles. Use a teaspoon or teaspoons to shape the chocolate ganache and you can roll them in cocoa. Yum. Wow. Thanks so much to Rose Levy Barenbaum for giving us her ganache recipe. Before we wrap up today's show, we're going to hear a book recommendation from our producer, Emily. Hi, Time for Lunch listeners. You may have heard Hannah and Harry mention Charlie and the Chocolate Factory earlier in the episode. Well, I'm here to tell you a little more about this great book. The story follows Charlie Bucket after he wins a highly competitive contest to tour the mysterious and magical Wonka Chocolate Factory. The factory contains some of the most creative chocolate confections. My favorites are the Chocolate River and Lickable Wallpaper but each winner will soon learn the tour is really a test of their greed and indulgence. And even more, it seems that Mr. Willy Wonka himself has a secret. This book is a can't miss, and it's a classic for any chocolate lover. Hope you guys check it out. At the beginning of the episode, we asked, What country produces the most chocolate? And the answer is Cote d'Ivoire. Before we wrap up the show today, we're going to share a bright spot from the last week. Harry and Emily, would you like to share some bright spots with our listeners? Well, for me, my brightest spot from the last week is that we got a dog. Yay! My family loves dogs, and we haven't had a dog in a couple of years. We had a dog for a long time, and then he died. And so we finally felt ready to bring a new dog into our family, and his name is Bruce, and he is super fun. Welcome to the Time for Lunch family, Bruce. We're happy to have you. We'll see if we can get Bruce to do some recipes for a future episode. (laughs) And Emily, what about you? My bright spot for the week is putting up our Christmas tree um, with my family, and we always play lots of Christmas music and drink hot chocolate while we put it up. And it was really fun because we have a lot of old ornaments, and it just made it everything feel like winter. Do you have a favorite ornament? Hmm. I have a little Eskimo ornament, and he has a, like a Christmas ribbon, but I got him in Alaska, so that always reminds me of a fun trip. I think my bright spot is not from this week, but from the week of Thanksgiving. We are super grateful to our friends at Mystery Recipe for sharing our Thanksgiving episode with their listeners. And last week, we shared an episode of their show. And it's been a bright spot to make some new friends in the world of kids podcasting. So big thanks again to them for being such great buds. 
Thanks for listening to Time for Lunch today. We'll be back next week with more tasty stories. This show is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Harry Rosenblum and Hannah Forden, with engineering by Liam Werner. Emily Kunkel is our associate producer and produced today's episode. Music in this episode was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder, and our fun facts theme was created by our very own Liam Werner. Special thanks this week to our cake and chocolate experts, Rose Levy-Burnbaum and Todd Masonis. Time for Lunch is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Time for Lunch is also a part of Kids Listen, the number one app for finding great podcasts for kids of all ages. You can learn more at kidslisten.org, and you can download the app from iTunes or the Google Play Store. Time for Lunch is powered by Simplecast. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a joke you'd like to share or if you'd just like to tell us what you had for lunch, we absolutely love to hear from our listeners. Send us your recipes, poems, book or podcast recommendations, or anything else you think we'd like. It's super easy to record yourself using the Voice Memo app on an iPhone. Ask a grown-up to help you email us at timeforlunchpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to include your name, age and your address so we can send you a little something in return. Time for Lunch is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.